Welcome to TLD Talks, where we share insights about key legal and business matters that are impacting SMEs today. Bringing together experts from a range of backgrounds, we'll be tackling the issues that matter to you. I'm Ed Simpson, CEO of The Legal Director, and I'm joined on today's podcast by one of our very experienced client legal directors, Dagmar Kibble. And we're going to be having a chat about some of the issues that can arise if your business tenders for contracts with very large entities such as the NHS. So hello, Dagmar. Thank you for joining me today. Hi, Ed. Um, So for the benefit of the listeners, could I ask you please to introduce yourself and your practice at TLD? Sure. Yes. So um, I am... 20 plus years qualified and for most of my large portion of my career I've worked for medical companies who provide products and services to the NHS or to private um, sector. I've been with the legal director for about six months and I am working with some medical clients and some non-medical clients as well so um, so I'm getting a broad range of experience. Great so welcome to the podcast So turning to our subject matter today, we're going to be talking particularly about your experience dealing with the NHS on behalf of your clients dealing with the NHS. But I think the issues that we're going to be talking about have a sort of a wider application for any large entities that runs a tendering process for buying in services and goods. Starting with the the very basics, what is a tender process and how does it work? So essentially, bodies such as the NHS or other large public bodies have to follow the public procurement regulations when they are tendering for anything that's above basically around £200,000 for services and products. So the tender processes should follow a certain pattern But most of the time, what I found with NHS tenders in particular is they give very short timeframes. They issue the tender through their online portals and they give you a timeframe in which to respond. And generally, um, what I've found as working in-house for companies supplying into those, that's all hands to the pump, literally trying to get that tender done because they want a lot of information. They give you quite a lot of documentation And it all has to happen quite quickly. And once you bid on that tender, you are committed, essentially. So you need to make sure that you get it right at the beginning. Okay, so first obvious question there, Dagmar, is around the terms and conditions. Obviously, as lawyers, that's something that we tend to focus on. Do you get a chance to actually negotiate the terms that are presented to you in the tender document, either as your going through the tendering process or if you're successful afterwards? How does that work? Okay, so you you probably don't get chance to negotiate in the same way that we would usually see that. So normally there'd be a contract, you'd mark it up, you'd send it over to the other side, they'd have a look. That kind of process doesn't work in a tender. So what happens is you get a chance to review the terms and conditions, you get a chance to review the contract and all the documentation that goes with it. And usually there's a a lot of other documentation that may contain legal terms as well. So it isn't just the contract that's the legal piece. And essentially, you get a chance to ask clarification questions as part of the tender process. And there's usually a date for the end of the clarification period, which is usually before the submission date. 
And in that time, you can ask clarifications about things like terms of the contract and you can make suggestions such as we've noticed that the um, service provider can't exit this contract. Is it the trust's intention for this to be the case? If they answer that in a certain way and then you bid, then that is you having negotiated something to be added, which obviously if you were successful, you would need to check. However, once you are successful, if you've bid and you are awarded the tender, you can't make any changes to the contract at that point. You could try, <laughs> but the NHS or the trusts would usually be quite reluctant to do that. So really, the point I made earlier about the time frame being short is really important to make sure you understand that contract at that time. Well, I understand now you're all hands to the pump reference absolutely definitely so clearly there's a there's a real emphasis on understanding all of the legal terms of the contract and making sure that you're comfortable with them if you do slip up at that point and you are successful you get awarded the contract and then you realize there's something problematic you've said that the nhs generally wouldn't allow you to renegotiate something could you back out at that stage or are you legally committed you are legally committed you've placed a, a bid so let's say you got your pricing wrong yeah. based on something that was in there if you made that bid and you're a million pounds short of of what you should have put they will kind of usually say tough unless you've got a good relationship but generally no they won't okay and if you put a tender in and you're unsuccessful, is there a way of challenging the decision? And supplementary question, how transparent is the sort of awarding process? Are you notified as to why you've been unsuccessful? So I think in my experience, it varies on the transparency point. Some trusts are very good at feeding back why they've scored certain, you know, that's that's the requirement to provide scores for certain questions and to give the feedback as to what, what those scores are. But sometimes they fall below that and they don't feed back in the right way for you to kind of understand why you may have failed. So challenging a tender is quite difficult. Unfortunately, the law is quite antiquated in this area. And the only way to challenge is through a high court injunction, which for the listeners, basically the high court is very expensive. You need top barristers, etc. involved, and it becomes a very expensive process. One of the things I have done and worked with my clients on before is sending a sort of legal letter and asking for them to explain their decision or asking, you know, if we if we can see there's an error and they've calculated something wrong, ask them to explain it. Send that legal letter saying that you're reserving your rights. The other point around the High Court injunction is it has to be very quick as well. And usually you don't have that kind of time so I found the letter to be quite a good approach. However, it doesn't usually change the outcome of the decision. They, they rarely change their minds. And of course, if you as the unsuccessful bidder are looking to challenge it, there's somebody that thinks they've been awarded the contract. <laughs> um, if the decision is going to be overturned, they're going to be the aggrieved party at that point, aren't Correct. they? Correct, yeah. So, so it would be unlikely for them to, to change their minds or overturn the decision on that process you know sending a letter but 
I've not had any clients who've actually gone all the way to the high court and challenged because, as I say, it's expensive and um, it probably isn't going to give you the right outcome either. And just thinking back to what we were talking about on the terms and conditions and the point you made about asking clarification questions and making suggestions, if you were to say in your tender response a particular term of the contract was not was not acceptable... Is that something that you could lose the tender because of that? Potentially, yes, because a lot of the questions are yes and no. So do you accept X? Do you accept Y? If you say no, they probably just mark you down on that. And it is very, you know, very much the case that it's three points for that answer, four points for that answer. So you you might lose four points by putting no. So it is quite restrictive, the way that it works. Right. So you've explained that um, generally these things have got a very short time frame and you're given a huge amount of information to absorb and understand and assess. In your experience, what are the sort of the key risk areas for a supplier that's looking at bidding for a contract, say, with the NHS? Yeah, so, um, you know, this kind of works for both product and services, but a lot of the time the service contracts are more complicated. And so the things in there that, that you've got to be wary of is the length of the contract. Some of these contracts can be seven years with a three-year extension, which is not something that the service provider gets to agree. So you could find yourself in a contract for 10 years. Sometimes there will be a clause that says that you can't raise the prices in that 10 years. So obviously when we see the economical situation that we've been in the last few years, imagine being in a contract where you quoted a price eight years ago and you haven't been able to change it. That is a a big issue. The parameters of the service and usually the lack of commitment from the NHS or the trusts is usually an issue as well. So for example, they may ask you to invest and build a particular facility for them. You have to put all of the money into that and you recoup that by the number of patient visits they don't actually have any commitment to even send one patient. So (laughs) if if they don't, if they choose not to, obviously that could be a problem. So I think you've got to work out as a business commercially, is that the right thing to bid on and the right pricing, bearing in mind all of these things that they can and can't do. Wow. (laughs) Um, I mean, again, thinking about the sort of the price rise clauses, For long-term supply contracts, in most commercial contracts, I would say inflationary price rise clauses are commonplace. There's often an inflationary price rise clause. But I think what I mean is kind of where you are suffering with significant increases on wages or costs, etc. You can't then go back to them and say, look, we've got this problem with all of these costs. We need to increase your price. They won't accept they that. They won't accept that. So so you've really got to think, especially for these sort of longer term five year plus contracts. Yeah. Yeah, it makes the pricing, uh, I would think, phenomenally complicated trying to work out and, and factor in all the possible scenarios that it could does. happen. Exactly. And, and you know, the other thing to also note is that there's very rarely an exit provision for the service provider. So you are usually tied into that contract. There isn't usually a way for you to get out of it do these sort of contracts have what we call force majeure type provisions in them so i'm thinking in particular about 
what we've been through in the last couple of years. So COVID lockdowns, you know, potentially impact of the war in Eastern Europe. Are those sorts of provisions, do we tend to see those in these contracts? And then could you actually apply them? You do. Um, They are in there. But given that you're usually providing a service or products for patients, it's unlikely that as a key provider into the NHS, you're going to go, sorry, we're not going to provide this anymore because of force majeure. You are really from a point of view of having to care about what you're doing you usually have to continue your your service provision or provide your products because patients are at the end of that so i've never i've never chosen to rely on those clauses or or advised a client to do that even through covid when times were tough you mentioned earlier the sort of hypothetical of building a facility but then no patients actually being put through that. Is is that something that you've experienced or with your clients? I have actually experienced that, yeah. Um, I've had an experience where the trusts, kind of neighbouring trusts, formed a different trust along the way and the new trust bid or created a tender for a new facility, which was literally down the road. And there was nothing in that contract to, to stop them doing that or to stop them sending patients to a different facility. So, and also it can be where the patients want to go. So sometimes, you know, there might be an outpatient service and patients might not want to drive 20 miles to X location. And there is nothing usually in those contracts that stops that happening. So there, there is no commitment from their side. So if you were alert to that potential risk, is that something that you could put into your tender response? You know, this is done on the on the assumption that there will be a minimum throughput of patients or something like that? Unlikely. Mm. Um, I think you have to kind of just accept it. But what you can do is during the contract, you have to keep an eye on that contract very carefully. And you have those conversations and meetings with them to understand what's going wrong or what's what's not working but that is the way that I have seen it be tackled rather than in the contracting stage interesting so I'm sure there are lots of other traps for for the unwary SME that's looking at bidding for a tender and you mentioned in particular earlier about this sort of wide range of information and documentation that you're given and that is not just the the terms and conditions piece which forms the legal terms of legal commitments. Can you give some examples of other things that might become a legal commitment without potentially without people actually realising it? Yeah, there's there's kind of two areas really, which in my experience I've seen be problematic. One is the specification, because you might think that's not a legal document but the specification of what they want from their product or their service is very 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 detailed and you have to be able to provide that and so you're potentially in breach of contract if you don't so that's one to really make sure the business understands and the the commercial team understand and the other one that I've seen creeping in sort of recently probably in the last year into NHS contracts is um, the ESG type of provisions, which, so they might say something about your slavery policy, for example. And obviously, as we know, legally, we have to, a lot of larger companies have to have a modern slavery statement, but they don't actually have to commit to doing anything legally. And the same with zero carbon emissions and that kind of thing. There is no legal commitment. However, what these contracts do is say, we want to see your policy 
And then it forms part of the contract as to what your plan is over this seven year term or whatever. So you are effectively binding yourself contractually to what you're going to do on modern slavery and on emissions um, and things like that, which you legally don't have to, you know, according to the law. But according to these big contracts, you are effectively doing that. That's really interesting. I've said we've done a couple of podcasts around ESG and net zero. And the interesting point that's come out of those conversations has been that the real driver for businesses to take on the challenge of having a a meaningful ESG policy and sustainability, what have you, it's not going to come from government changing the law and regulations. It's going to come from the requirements of suppliers and customers. And that's really interesting that you're seeing that actually alive and happening now. Just going back to the point on the specification and how they can often be very detailed. Have you come across situations where somebody say, well, kind of functionally, I'm giving you the same thing. So your outcome is going to be the same. It might not actually follow the strict letter of the specification. That'll be all right, won't it? No, um, (laughs) generally it won't. Because if they've put, for example, in their specification, the type of staffing ratio they want, the type of hours they want you to run that service for or something like that, and you deviate from that, effectively they consider that to be a breach of contract. And so that's why I'm saying that those those provisions, you know, if you were using an external lawyer, you might not send all of that to your external lawyer. You might think, well, I'll just send them the contract because that's all they'll want to see. But actually, all of that stuff that goes with it, the specification, all of the side documents are really, really important because they are actually things that they can get you for breaching the contract on and things that they can say, you're not running it eight till eight, which is what we ask for. And even though you might not have any patients in until nine o'clock, it doesn't matter. You've agreed legally to provide a service for those particular hours or with that particular number of staff. So you do have to be pretty cautious on those. So it sounds like the process of putting a big together itself is going to be complex and sophisticated and require multiple departments inputting and for somebody to manage all that and knit it all together and make sure that the response is picking up everybody's input. Yeah. So bringing the conversation to a conclusion, we always like to give some sort of top tips for SMEs that are looking at tendering. What would you say are your key takeaways for an FD or a a CEO or a commercial director that's listening to this podcast and is thinking about tendering for one of these large contracts? So I think the first one is to make sure that you have seen and received and read all the documents What sometimes happens in these tenders is there might be embedded files within documents and things like that. So if they don't open and you haven't seen them, you need to ask a clarification question to get those documents. So literally, you need to see everything and read everything beforehand. And don't be afraid to ask clarifications. So, you know, if something doesn't sound right, the clarification process is there to to do that. And what you tend to find is that they have to share all the clarifications from all of the providers. So you will get to see what other people have put in there as well. So it gives you a, a bigger picture and it builds that picture. Um, so definitely that that would be my first one. My second one would be that you keep all of that correspondence with the contract. So your bid in full 
all the clarifications that were made and answered and because they are the basis on which you decided to tender and the reason you tendered is because you thought you could provide this service or these products or whatever if you then later find there's an issue with that contract and it's down to something that was put in a clarification that they responded to you need to be able to prove that that was in there. And I've actually had a situation with the client before where we had to sit around a table, pull out the clarification. The other side were basically arguing that they were just convenience. Uh, they, they weren't part of the contract. And, you know, we argued, yes, they absolutely were because clearly they make your decision to bid on a tender and then you're legally bound by that decisions. So of course those clarifications are important. So make sure you keep all of that information. And then I guess, you know, make sure you understand what you're actually tendering for, what the specification is, what that, you know, as I, as I pointed out earlier, that you really fully understand the service you're going to be required to provide or the products you're going to be required to provide and when, because, you know, legally you are bound at that stage. So that's the important thing to understand. Fantastic. Really good advice there, Dagmar. Thank you. Thank you. That brings us to the end of the podcast. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed our discussion today, you can subscribe to our monthly TLD talks covering a wide range of legal and management topics. You'll find details on our website, www.thelegaldirector.co.uk. And you can also find us on Apple, Spotify and Google. If you'd like to know more about tendering for NHS contracts or the wider work of the legal director and how a part-time legal director can save you time and money, then do give us a call on 020-3053-8613 or visit our website.